Good morning, everyone. It is really a treat to be back here. I love coming back to uh, Calvary Chapel, Delaware County. And um, I know Pastor Bob is on his sabbatical. And actually, uh, last month, he had a, a wedding to perform in my hometown of Houston. And so uh, we were able to have lunch together uh, at one of my favorite restaurants in Houston and catch up a little bit. So uh, he seems to be doing well for a man his age. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, he'll be back with you soon, I know. And Mike is, like I said, doing a great job in the book of Ruth, which puts me in an interesting slot because um, Bob essentially said to me, well, whatever you have on Ruth, just kind of push it in there. So I have a message that I'm going to kind of push in there today, knowing that Mike is going to cover everything else about the book, and you're going to be uh, very well taught, and it's, it's just a great book and you're having a great time studying it this month. So I have a very specific uh, approach, of an angle, if you will, that I want to talk about today. And um, maybe it can be summed up by this expression. No one should go through what you're going through by yourself. No one should go through what you're going through by yourself. I want to talk to you today about dealing with loss. What do you do when your life is turned upside down? When you experience a removal of something that maybe you once had that is now gone and it's debilitating, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's in the setup of the book of Ruth but if we're not careful, we can move right past it into other equally important teaching truths in the book. No one should go through what you're going through by yourself. Uh, this was said to me during the most difficult period of loss that I ever experienced in my life. I try very hard when I come to groups like you to make sure I don't repeat stories over and over again. Um, but I have a story that I know I've told here, but I want to tell it again this morning because it's so um, right on point in regards to what we're talking about today. Those of you that know my story know that it's now coming up on 26 years ago that I went through a very, very painful divorce. And I remember when my marriage ended, I was absolutely devastated. I couldn't understand what just happened. Here I am with these five kids. I don't understand why this happened. I didn't see it coming. It was, it was a complete shock to me, and I didn't know what I was going to do. So in uh, what I believe is a typical male fashion, this, this is good for men, um, I decided I was going to try to live my life as if nothing ever changed. And no one necessarily was going to have to know that I was single again. Uh, because of the nature of what I do, I travel and speak. I mean, you've seen me. I come in here, I give my talk, we shake some hands, and then basically I go home. You have no idea what I'm going home to. So I, I thought maybe I could pull that off. Wrong. I, I mean, it was just ridiculous. I remember, if you can think back to 26 years ago, very pre-cell phone, all that sort of thing. I remember that the phone would ring at home, the landline, there's two words you haven't heard together in a long time. 
the landline that was connected to, wait for it, the answering machine. Anybody old enough to remember an answering machine? That's crazy, isn't it? Now, I'm, I'm up with it. I'm high tech. I have a, a fax machine. But I, um, I remember I loved that answering machine because you could screen your calls. Remember, you could hear, this is your mother. I know you're there. Pick up, then pick up. And you can, you know, I don't want to talk to you now, mother. I got enough heartache without you. So I basically wasn't answering the phone. I just let all these people call because nobody had any idea anything was going on. Hey, Bill, what's going on? Let's see. And I just kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. Finally, I said, okay, look, I'm, I'm going to have to start letting people in on my big secret. So a really good friend of mine called. I was living in California at the time. A really good friend of mine called from Phoenix, Arizona. And this guy was always upbeat and always an encourager and always positive, and I thought... This is the guy. I'm going to let him be my test case on sharing my pain. So I pick up the phone. Hey, Gary, it's Bill. How you doing, Bill? Well, I got some bad news. I need to tell you what's going on in my life. I said, you better sit down. So I started sharing with Gary the pain of my divorce. And he was like, wow, wow. So are you working? I said, well, no, you know, I, I've canceled all my engagements and I'm, you know, I'm just trying to heal up here. And, and so, so your calendar's like wide open. Yeah, my calendar's wide open because I'm trying to get this all put together. And I'd, I'd share a little bit more of my pain and, and he would interrupt. So, so you got nothing in the days ahead. Nope, I got nothing in the days ahead. And I'd share a little more. And he said, did you say your calendar's wide open? Yeah, it's wide open. And I remember hanging up the phone thinking, well, that didn't go very well. I mean, I'm sharing my pain, and he's kind of obsessed with my calendar. Well, the next day, I would discover what that's all about. About 10.30, phone, uh, knock on the door. It's Federal Express with a plane ticket to Phoenix. Gary calls a few minutes later. He says, hey, did you get the FedEx? Yeah. And he said, and I quote, no one who's going through what you're going through should do this by yourself. He said, hey, look, my wife's going to visit her sister in Colorado. Why don't you come out to Phoenix? We'll be bachelors. We'll be a couple of bachelors. We'll do bachelor things. We'll play golf. We'll eat ribs. We'll raise our cholesterol. We'll do bachelor things. I said, that sounds so good. I am all over that. So I flew out to Phoenix. We had the best time. We played golf. We ate ribs. We raised our cholesterol. It was beautiful. So it's the night before I'm supposed to go back to California. And I remember, I'm already in bed in his guest room. And he's at the door jam. He's kind of jumping up. Now, Wasn't this great? Didn't you love it? Said, yeah, Gary, you didn't disappoint me. It was wonderful. He said, well, hey, I know you have an afternoon flight tomorrow. I think we should do one more thing before you leave tomorrow. Are you up for it? I said, sure. You never let me down. What do you got in mind? He said, well, I think we should get up real early and drive outside the city to the base of Camelback Mountain. I think we should climb Camelback Mountain together, watch the sunrise over the, uh, it, it's beautiful. It'll change your life. Are you up for it? Well, I had no idea what kind of shape I was in. To tell you the truth, my workout schedule was basically uh, putting the trash out weekly. And so, you know, I, I didn't know any better. Said, okay, sure, let's go for it. And so he says, great. And he throws in all this gear for, for tomorrow running shorts, hiking boots, tank top, my favorite piece of apparatus, this belt with 18 water bottles Velcroed to it. 
I remember falling off to sleep that night thinking, tomorrow I'm going to die. <laughs> so we get up at, oh, dark 30, and we get in the car, and we drive to the base of Camelback Mountain, only to discover that this, this climb is like a cultic ritual in that city. People are lined up single file to do this. This is probably as good a point as any to let you know that if you don't know about Phoenix, it's probably best described this way. Phoenix is the city of the newly wed and the nearly dead, okay? There's a lot of really old people that live in Phoenix, and they all seem to be in line to climb this mountain. So I jump in line behind Gary, and I'm walking up there, and I'm good for maybe about five minutes, and I'm huffing and puffing, and I'm, I'm drinking all my water. I'm just, I'm a mess. And I start hearing behind me, keep up with everybody, you blank, you know, and it's this cussing, you know, tattooed, bow-legged, super tanned, you know, blue-haired lady who's just <laughs> giving it to me, cussing like a sailor. If you can't keep up, and man, she's just smoking. And I just, just like, <coughs> So I remember I pull off and I say, Gary, I can't do this anymore. Go on, you know, save yourself, you know. <laughs> if on the way back down, if the, if the vultures haven't gotten my body, take it back and give it to my kids. He said, come on, you can do it. I said, no, no, I can't. He says, you can do it. I said, no, I can't. You can do it. I said, no. And then he said the coolest thing. He said, um, well, then let's, let's alter the plan here a little bit. How about if we climb Camelback Mountain at your own pace. You really need to do this, and you can do it. We just need to slow it down. And I remember throwing out a wisecrack, something like, well, if we go on my pace, we're sure not going to see the sunrise. And he said, well, that's all right. I think it's more important that you get up to, this, uh, up to the top of this mountain. And I mean, you know what I'm trying to tell you here. I mean, the metaphor of this guy helping me walk up the mountain. He's sharing his water with me because I've used up all my 18 bottles. I mean, there's all kinds of significant meaning. We got to the top. I was a true prophet. We did not see the sunrise. We had more of a Phoenix at high noon thing going by the time <laughs> I got up there. And I remember saying, Gary, I don't mean to be corny, but can we just stand here for a second? Could you just say a little prayer for me? especially for my kids. I'm really concerned about my kids. And he said a little prayer. It was far from profound. It was very simple. He said, amen. And he said, all right, let's go back down the mountain. And we went down the mountain. And folks, uh, all humility aside, I go down a mountain really well. I get a great pace, you know, very conversational. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. You know, and it was, it was a memorable event that even all these years later, 26 years later, I still remember that day. Certainly not original with me, but it's the truth nonetheless. Life is like that mountain journey. Every person in this room this morning is on that mountain somewhere. Some of us are on our way up and we have never hurt as deeply as we hurt right now. We don't know how we're going to have the strength to take another step forward to move up to the top of that mountain. And I know exactly how you feel because I've been on that mountain as well. And then there are others of us who are on the top of the mountain and we're seeing in that city, 
We're seeing something that we've never seen before and something that we would not have seen had we not endured that painful path upward. We celebrated it this morning as we worshiped that there are trials in life, but the trials do not undermine God's work in our life, but they enhance it. And you and I are stronger people today because of the mountains we've climbed. And then the rest of us are on our way down. Life is good. How are you? Good pace. What do you think? You know. Now, the only problem with that metaphor is life is more than one mountain. Lots of us have gotten through some significant loss only to find out a little further down the line there's more to come. I don't know what your circumstance is today, but maybe loss is a key word in your life right now. Maybe you have lost your spouse to, to divorce or you've lost your spouse to death or you've lost a child, or you've lost your job, or you've lost significant money in a bad investment, or you've lost a dear friend who's moved away, or you lost an important part of your health, or you lost a loved one to dementia, or you lost a scholarship that you counted on, or you lost a promotion you worked hard for, or you lost your sobriety in a moment of weakness. There's plenty more beyond that. But if you've experienced loss, today's lesson is very, very significant because it's that ability to have another person climbing that mountain with you in order to make it. So in view of that, let me try to insert just a brief snapshot into the book of Ruth. And then next week, you'll get back to the full teaching of the, of the full book. So if you have your Bibles, if you would open up to Ruth chapter 1. If you're at Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, you're exactly where I want you to be because in order to fully understand the book of Ruth, you need to understand the book that precedes it, the book of Judges. And as God is so wonderful in providing... God summarizes the entire book of Judges in the very last verse of the book. Judges 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel, listen to this phrase, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, if you want to jot down a few phrases about the book of Judges, here's three that you can write down. What this means is, number one, the people put God on the shelf. God was unnecessary. We can take care of ourselves, thank you very much. We don't need a God in our life. Another way to put it, number two, the society was sinfully depraved. The society was sinfully depraved. Why follow any kind of moral code? We're just going to do, if it feels good, we're going to do it. And number, uh, number three, the culture was characterized by self-centeredness. The people of the time of the judges were a band of narcissists. Just, hey, I just want something that really works for me. Now, you think of those two phrases, uh, three phrases, God on the shelf, sinfully depraved, and self-centered. It's painfully close to what you and I live through every day 
in our world. It's just not that different. And so you read more specifically in the book of Judges, it, there's a pattern that is not repeated once, but multiple times. Theologians call it the cycle of the Judges. And the way it works is like this. Since they're on their own, doing their own thing, they get themselves into trouble, okay? So there's five parts to the cycle of the Judges. They all begin with the letter S. The first S is sin. They mess up. They screw up. They do something damaging that really causes great stress, okay? So the first is sin that always leads to suffering, all right? They're in a hurting place because of their sin. So after sin, we have suffering, leads to number three, supplication. A good word that begins with S that's talking about prayer. Dear God, please help me. I'm hurting so badly. If you rescue me, I'll get my life on track and be a good person. And God hears their prayer and answers it. He solves their problem by saving them. The fourth S is salvation. He saves them from their suffering, which is followed by a period of silence. Sin, suffering, supplication, salvation, silence. And what happens in the period of silence? They go back to their own ways. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. I for, have, I've had enough uh, period of time to forget that God took care of me. I'll just keep doing my own thing. And then boom, they're back to sin. This is a bad time to have to live. So when you now come to Ruth 1.1, to me there's two very important lessons, at least, that I see in Ruth that I invite you to jot down. The first lesson is this, trying to live a godly life in an ungodly world. Trying to live a godly life in an ungodly world. I know Mike's unpacked that already for you a little bit, but it just flows off of every page of this book. Trying to live a godly life in an ungodly world. And then secondly, the kind of the angle that I wanna hit with you today, trying to press on after a painful loss. Trying to press on after a painful loss. Listen or follow along as I read the first group of verses in Ruth chapter one. It came about in the day when the judges governed, there's that judges period right there, that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. That's the same Bethlehem that Jesus will be born in, Bethlehem Ephratah. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of their sons were Malan and Chilion, Ephrahites from Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Now, here we start seeing the loss. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moab women as, whites, as wives. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Then both Malan and Chilion also died. And the women were bereft. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. So, it just looks like we're kind of setting the stage of the story, which we are. But, I mean, stop and think about that for a second. You lost your husband. You lost your spouse. 
You lost your life partner. Could it get any worse? Yes. You'd now lost both your sons. So we have three women, single again, who are trying to figure out how to deal with this loss. You're a well-taught church. You know being a woman in Old Testament times was a hundred times more difficult than being a woman today just because of the way the culture operated. And here you are dealing with loss in a very painful way. What are you going to do? Verse 6. Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return to the land, from the land of Moab, for she had heard that the land of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. Oh yeah, let's add to the loss. You're starving. There's a famine, so they're going anywhere they hear there might be food. So she departed, verse 7, from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to Judah. So Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. She's saying what would be the appropriate thing at that point. You're not obligated to stay with me since all of our husbands have passed away. You're free to go. Don't let me be a burden to you. Now, she points out another part of the law by saying in verse 9, may the Lord grant that you find rest each in the home of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. But they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. Naomi says, return, my daughters. Why would you want to go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughter. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I said I had hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It's harder for me than it is for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Now, the law said, hey, if you lost your husband, you know, uh, remarry, and then your uh, new offspring could possibly be available to your daughter-in-law. But they're saying, wait a minute, there's such an age gap here. This is ridiculous. You're freed up. You're not obligated to stay with me. And again, it gets lost in some of the language there, but she's essentially saying, you owe me nothing. You don't have to stay. Go. And we see that the two daughters in law, both choose something different, all right? Where are we here? Verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, essentially goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. She said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back for her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said this wonderfully famous literature, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. When, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Ruth clung to Naomi. Verse 14. You want to circle that word, cling? It's very important. It's what I call the reassurance of a relationship. 
that even though all of life was falling apart, and Naomi said, well, now all the, you know, the daughters are going to leave me. So Ruth said, no, I'm going to stay and I'm going to cling to you. Cling is a very interesting word there in the Hebrew. You may know it from a more famous passage in Genesis. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife. Now, I thought, having read that for years, that cling was an exclusively marital term, that that was something that meant between a man and a woman in marriage. And it's a very strong word, but it's not the only way it's used. It's used here to talk about two friends clinging to each other. If you want another example, write down Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. Listen to this. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him. So we, we cling in a marital relationship. We cling in a friendship relationship. We cling in our relationship to God. Now what's really fascinating to me is in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul quotes the Genesis passage, for this cause a man shall leave a father and shall cling. And when we get to the Greek word, that's where we get to the word that's like being welded together, cemented. I can't pull it apart. There is a constancy to it. We really hammer that home in marriage, as we should. And we should really hammer that home in our relationship with God. We should. I don't hear it a lot about friendship about human relationship that will help you figure out how to press on after a painful loss. You can connect the dots and figure out why this is significant to me. My wife was my very best friend. And when my marriage ended, I lost my very best friend. To make it worse, when we originally married all those years ago, I somehow got the idea that I didn't need to spend any time investing in other friendships. And so when I lost my best friend, I lost my friend. I didn't have anybody else to turn to. So that's a, that's a profound problem. And I think many can identify. Let me get a real quick show here. If you're married and willing to put your hand up, would you put your hand up? Okay, pretty popular here. Think about that. Now, if you're single, would you put your hand up? Yeah. Now, if you're in either one of those categories, this is very appropriate to you. Because we're talking about the reassurance of relationships, the importance of having people in your life. So, without stepping on Mike's toes and getting too much deeper into the book of Ruth, let me just take a few minutes now and go off on my little treatise on why I need friends in my life. Why I need relationships that go beyond even my marriage. And if you can keep up with me, you can jot down these notes and jot down these scriptures. But we're going to do them in... Uh, hyperspeed. Why do I need friends? Number one, I need them for my spouse. 
I need them for my spouse. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. In marital counseling, oftentimes I will hear somebody say in the privacy of a counseling session, you know, she's all over me. I mean, I can't get a break from this woman to save my life. Or, oh my gosh, he will not let up. I mean, I, I'm convinced I am all he's got. It's, it's sad, actually. Well, what, what's going on? Why is it creating a problem? And the, and the word that, that crops up is this word. Well, he's smothering me. Or she's smothering me. And what they're saying by that is they're dumping all of their life on you and not anybody else. And so if you can't handle every individual aspect of their life, you're less than. Now, please don't misunderstand, because this is really a, a fine line. I am not saying that if you're married, you should start to create distance in your marriage. We're not asking you to be aloof and secretive and, ooh, what's going on? But what I'm saying is, do you have other people in your life that can help meet needs in your life that is not necessary to put on your spouse? I mean, is someone able to talk sports with you or go to the mall with you or, you know, join a class together? You know, is there something that can happen so that, heaven forbid, if that spouse would be taken away, you wouldn't be friendless? You're honoring your spouse by giving them a little room to breathe. Why do we need friends? Because of my spouse. Number two, because there's strife in life. There's strife in life. Galatians chapter six, verse two says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. As I'm illustrating, thank goodness Gary was in my life who was willing to fly me to another city to help me get a breath of fresh air in dealing with the pain that I was dealing with. Who is that person in your life? If you don't have one, that's what this is all about today, that you need to start looking at how can I have somebody come into my life that's like that. Third, I need friends because it adds depth and breadth to my life. It adds breadth and depth to my life. In um, Proverbs 27, verse 17, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We need one another. You know, even in our body of Christ, we all have different gifts. If you ever get, ever get involved in any of these personality inventories that they take, usually they can divide people up. I can divide this room in half. Half of us are energized by people. The other half of us are absolutely drained by people. And when that comes into friendships, it looks like this. Those that are energized by people have a hundred friends. And they're maybe about six inches deep. The one who's drained by people tends to have a friend or two that they've had for life. You know, they're 83 and they still talk to one another since they met in first grade. But they know everything about it because that's all about death. My wife and I are very different. I'm more of the extroverted side. She's more of the introverted side. We'll go to a, a party. Um, excuse me. We go to a fellowship and... Um, I'll, I'll walk in 
And I'm an extrovert. I'll see, hey, there's about 50 people at this uh, place, and we're going to be there about three hours. So you know what? I think that means I got about like three minutes with each person. And I work the room. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. What you know? Hey, what you know? Yeah, we'll do lunch. Yeah, call me. All right. Yeah, we're gonna. You know. <laughs> Kathy walks in, and she goes, "Oh my gosh, there's Sally over there. I haven't seen Sally in like three months." They go off in a corner. They talk the whole time. I have to pull her away. She said, why are we leaving? I said, we've been here three hours. Well, well what's your hurry? I said, because I've already worked the room. <laughs> I got lunches set up through 2024, man. It's a beautiful thing. Come on. If she wasn't in my life, I'd still have to say I got 100 friends that are only about that deep. And because I'm married to her, she's able to say, well, I am meeting a few more people. We help each other because of our differences. That's the way God made us. We're all very different. Some of you are here and you're saying, you know, I could never get up there and do what that guy is doing. And others of you are saying, well, I sure could get up there and do a lot better job than he's doing. <laughs> and everything in between because of the way we're wired, okay? Why do I need friends? It adds depth and breadth. Number four, I need friends because it fights loneliness and isolation. Loneliness and isolation. Genesis 2, 18, it is not good for man to be alone. That's not a specific marital statement. It's a statement about the human race in general. We are not wired to be isolated all by ourselves. Think about it. Isolated all by yourself. What's the word? A hermit. Who wants to be known as a hermit? Well, he's a gregarious little hermit. No, that, that contradicts. Hermits, they, they, they don't have a gregarious bone in their body. All right? We need other people around us. Number five, it fights superiority and inferiority. Proverbs 27, 19, as in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects man. I need other people in my life to help me get perspective. Um, Several years ago, I reacquainted myself with one of my childhood friends. I hadn't seen each other since we grew up here in Philadelphia. And this guy has a mind like a steel trap. He has been so helpful to me to tell me about things in my childhood and my youth I had completely forgotten about. And he'll say, man, you did this and you did that. And I kind of non-humbly say, well, wow, that was pretty good. He said, yeah, I, I never knew. I completely forgot. Yeah, you were. That was really good. Now, let me tell you about the idiot things you did. Oh, well, and I realize exactly what God wants me to realize. You know what? In this room, you're no better than anybody else, and nobody else is better than you. We're all equal in God's sight, and we oftentimes need that face reflects face to see, you know what? I, I just need this person in my life. Number six, I can teach and I can learn. At least the culture's grabbing this one. I can teach and I can learn. This is the current fad of mentoring and, and being a mentee, all right? That we at least are realizing that, hey, I have something that I can contribute to somebody else and I want to try to do that. And I have someone, it's hard to believe there's someone older than me that's still alive, but... I, there's this wonderful man who connects with me every day. We don't even live in the same city, but text and phone call and email. He checks in with me every day, and his mentoring has meant everything to me. It's, it's so amazing, okay? 
And I encourage you to do that. Just be the kind of person that's building into someone else and having someone do that for you. Number seven, I can support and I can be supported. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, it's the, uh, the body of Christ at work. It's a beautiful thing. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, but encouraging one another, encouraging one another, that I need support every day, whether I'm in the deepest, darkest period of loss or whether it's never been better. I need what other people can bring to my life. It's how I watch God work, that God can do something in my life through my friends. Now, I realize that for some, that might, that might sound crazy because it's like, well, I don't understand even the whole premise of this. You don't need a friend. You need Jesus. Jesus is all you need. And I understand that theologically. But Jesus has also made himself available through the lives of other believers in our life. And that Jesus with skin helps me see some things I might not ever see on my own. And so that's the big wedge that I want to just throw into our story about Ruth. That Ruth saw the importance of clinging in that relationship. I will stay with you. And it's, it's so interesting to me that I, I've been in a number of weddings or attended a number of weddings where the pastor has used for the bride and groom where you go, I will go, your people will be my people. Where you, It's beautiful in a marriage. But that's not what the primary message of the text is. It was two friends talking about the reassurance of their relationship as they would cling together. So your homework assignment is very simple. If you don't have a friend, get one. <laughs> Quickly. No, begin praying, begin asking God, you know, who would be the person that might be this kind of person in my life? If you are married, talk with your spouse about it. Who, who do you think would be a good person? I mean, it goes without saying, in terms of friendship of this level, men need to be befriending men, women need to be befriending women. It just gets too complicated and really a dangerous, slippery slope any other way. Who is the person that I can have in my life that will stretch me in that way, that will make me stronger? Ruth clung to her. 